Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Save big money at Menards. Let the fresh air in and keep the bugs out with replacement screen for your doors and windows from AdForce. It's easy to install, durable against the elements, and comes in a variety of types to suit your needs. Repair your screens today with a roll of replacement screen on sale through May 5th. And check out more great deals happening now in our weekly flyer on Menards.com. Save big money at History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp Therapy Online. Life doesn't come with a user manual, so when life stops working for you, it's pretty normal to feel stuck. Imagine somebody who spent, oh, say, 25 years being really distracted overwhelmed by clutter, and fluctuating between being really into obscure ancient history and not being able to find the motivation to do the dishes. That person is me, and apparently, if there were a user manual to life, it might have told me that I have ADHD and should talk to my doctor about that. Therapists are about as close to a manual as we can get. Folks who are trained to help you figure out challenging emotions and learn coping skills. BetterHelp has connected millions of people with licensed, registered therapists for convenient and secure online therapy. It's convenient and 100% accessible online. No waiting rooms, no traffic, and not even endless googling of therapist near me. You just fill out a questionnaire and get matched with an appropriate therapist. And if it doesn't click, 
BetterHelp makes it easy to switch providers. Everyone deserves to feel their best, so get unstuck with BetterHelp. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com persia. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash persia. Hi, History of Persia listeners. My name is Derek, and I'm the host of the Hellenistic Age podcast, a history show covering Alexander the Great to Cleopatra. The conquest of Persia by Alexander and the foundation of the successor kingdoms across the former Achaemenid Empire allowed for the influx and fusion of Greek culture and society with that of Egypt, Persia, India, and more. From the Straits of Gibraltar to the mountains of the Hindu Kush, from the Punic Wars to the Greek Buddhist kings of northern India, we'll take a journey stretching some 300 years and 5,000 miles through the Hellenistic Age ranging from the politics and wars of Hellenistic kings and queens to detailed looks at the fascinating social, religious, and cultural developments of this new cosmopolitan society. I hope that I've managed to garner your interest. And if you want to check out the show, you can find me at the podcast platform of your choice or by heading to my website at hellenisticagepodcast.wordpress.com. Now, on with the history of Persia. Hello everyone, welcome to the History of Persia. This is episode 23, The Lion Kings. Alright, well, either you appreciated the pun or you rolled your eyes. But I laughed, so I get to feel like I'm coming out on top here. You just heard from Derek of the Hellenistic Age podcast. If you don't already know, the Hellenistic period basically covers the Persian Empire and Greece in the after-effects of Alexander's conquests. Of course, I'll cover some of that in my own way eventually, but that won't be for a long time or nearly as broad as the Hellenistic Age. So, if that time period interests you, I highly recommend checking out the show. There's a link in the description and on the website. Last time, I covered the rebellions and civil wars against the new king, Darius I, at the end of 522 and all the way through 521 BC. I didn't quite make it to the end of Darius's first year on the throne as the King of Kings, so we're picking right back up where I left off. Thanks to the Behistun inscription, I'm able to give an almost battle-by-battle down-to-the-exact-date account of these wars. Over the course of his first year on the job, Darius saw revolts in Media, Persia, Armenia, Sagartia, and Parthia Hyrcania, a rebel invasion of loyalist Arachosia, the first of two revolts in Babylon, and two of three in Elam. I also want to slightly correct one thing from the last episode. The second rebel king in Elam, Martilla, is identified in the Behistun inscription as a Persian who masqueraded as an Elamite king. Last time, I just said that he was an Elamite. Not that big of a deal because he was immediately deposed by his own subjects, but just for accuracy's sake, he was really a Persian, not an Elamite. I left off right on the precipice of the Second Babylonian Revolt. There was a short lull in the chaos. By the end of July of 521, all of the ongoing revolts had been suppressed, and Darius ruled all of the major royal capitals in Babylon, Ecbatana, and Pasargadai. So naturally, on August 23rd, a Babylonian scribe dated his clay tablet to the first year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar IV, son of Nabonidus, and brother to Prince Belshazzar and the defeated rebel Nebuchadnezzar III, 
who Darius smeared as the pretender called Nidin to Bell. That's right, Darius got less than 40 days respite before a new rebel king emerged in Babylon to call the attention of the Persian and Median army. Kind of shockingly, the Behistun inscription doesn't talk about any further action or conflict with these rebels until November of 521. Either that pesky harvest season got in the way again, and Darius couldn't afford the manpower to invade Mesopotamia for the second time in a year until much later in the season, or the cuneiform record is incomplete. In the latter theory, the tablet from August is from Nebuchadnezzar IV's early following and survived into the modern world by happenstance. Like any historical question, the answer is probably somewhere between the two options. The identity of Nebuchadnezzar IV also presents a weird historical scenario. Darius tells us that he was an Armenian. The Behistun inscription identifies the second Babylonian rebel as Araka, an Armenian, the son of Haldita, and depending on which version of the text you read, says that he launched his rebellion either from a town called Dubala or from the ancient city of Ur. Haldita, the rebel's father, had an Arartian name, so you can see more of that blending of Armenia and Arartu that I talked about last time in action. But what do we make of this whole Armenian claiming to be Babylonian royalty and rebelling situation? Part of it is just that Mesopotamia has been increasingly cosmopolitan for centuries, and its inclusion in the vast multinational Persian Empire was speeding that up. But it also probably signifies a strong desire in Babylon to get rid of the Persians, they were willing to follow a semi-prominent noble with no real claim to the throne on the condition that he at least claimed the Chaldean bloodline. As usual, there's disappointingly little information to support any discussion here, but it's interesting to speculate about the Babylonian politics at the time. Babylonian archives and annals are still crucial to our understanding of the Persian period, but beginning with the arrival of Cyrus, we gradually have less and less information about internal Babylonian politics over the following decades and centuries. It's a little surprising that Babylon rose in revolt against Darius twice. Given that last we heard about them in Persian history, they were welcoming Cyrus the Great and the Persian conquerors into the city gates. But let's look at it from another perspective. A generation of heavy taxes to support constant imperial expansion later, and a generation removed from the oppressive lethargy of Nabonidus, and the people of Babylonia may have felt just a little bit less welcoming to their Persian occupiers. We should also note that it's not just Babylon going into revolt here. Araka just declared his bid for the throne in Ur, so rebellion is ramping up throughout the country of Babylonia, where Cyrus the Great supposedly saw some real resistance and oversaw one of the most brutal sacks of his entire conquest at Opus. It wouldn't be unreasonable or without historical precedent for the people of Babylonia to resent the Persians, even when powerful factions in the capital did not. No matter what their motivations were, the best I can do is idly speculate. The firm fact we do have is that Intafrenes, one of the six co-conspirators who assassinated Bardia with Darius almost a year earlier, marched a Persian army into Babylon, where he defeated the rebels and seized Araka with his foremost supporters on November 27th, 521. Darius then ordered that they, like so many rebels before them, be publicly crucified. Not to let autumn transition to winter uneventfully, 
521 BCE closed out with just one more revolt, this one in the northeastern extremities of the empire, in the territory of Margiana. That covered what is now eastern Turkmenistan and the bordering bits of Uzbekistan and Afghanistan. Stan, since we're talking about it, is actually a Persian suffix meaning place of, so Uzbekistan is the place of the Uzbeks, Afghanistan is the place of the Afghans, and so on. Going back up into its Indo-European roots, the Persian word stan is cognate with the English word stand, like I stand in place, and the word state, like the nation-state of Turkmenistan. So for those who wondered why one part of the world has so many stands, now you know. So, in December of 521, a leader called Frada led Margiana into revolt. Apparently, Margiana was a subdivision of Bactria at the time, as Darius describes the events there as, This is what was done by me in Bactria, and he sent the satrap of Bactria to deal with the revolt. Interestingly enough, we've actually already met the satrap of Bactria in the story of these revolts. If you don't remember from last episode, it's Dadarshi, the Persian general who reinvigorated the Armenian campaign in the previous spring. Dadarshi went out to Margiana and defeated the rebels on December 28th, one day shy of 15 months after Darius had initially claimed the throne, and I have to think there was some urgency to defeating Frada. Turkmenistan is dominated by some of the driest desert landscape in the world, and Margiana may have been challenging to invade. Though the weather remains fair throughout the winter, desert and steppe are never environments hospitable to protracted campaigns, a lesson which Darius and his armies would learn all too well in the very near future. There's also a little bit of debate over whether or not the Margian Revolt was actually in December of 522 or 521, as the Behistun inscription doesn't give us a year. However, Frada is the last king depicted in the line of sculpted rebels at Behistun, and all the others are in chronological order, so the usual assumption is that Frada was the last rebel chronologically as well. After discussing the last Babylonian revolt, the fourth section of the Behistun inscription takes a break from talking about revels and military victories to catalog the major figures of the last year with lists of both the defeated rebels and the six co-conspirators who helped defeat Bardia, along with lots of praising Ahura Mazda, cursing anyone who dared to defy the king, and talking about how awesome Darius himself just happened to be. I have an upcoming episode planned to talk about all of that stuff, but for now I'm going to stick with the military side of things. In that fourth section, it sounds a lot like they were writing closing remarks, and it even looks like that's how it was going to be in the original plan. But the Empire was not done harrying their new king just yet. A fifth section, that doesn't totally fit in the section of mountain allotted to the original monument, discusses two more revolts in the second and third years of Darius's reign, so that's 520 and 519 BC. Unfortunately, we don't get specific dates for these next two, and there may be evidence that one of them was actually a revolt that started in the autumn of 521, but wasn't defeated for a few months. First came a third and final rebel king of Elam, this one named Atamaita, and apparently an actual Elamite for a change. Of all the Elamite rebels, Atamaita was the only one with any real success. His army at least managed to stay on his side long enough to fight an actual battle. 
This time, Gabrius, yet another of those six conspirators, the original in fact, led the Persian army into Elam and captured Atamida in battle. The rebel king was brought to Darius in person before being executed like all of his predecessors. The final event on the Behistun inscription is a bit different from the others. Not only did Darius return to the field and personally lead the army, but this campaign isn't actually always described in terms of rebellion. It may be that this was a first in a new round of Persian campaigns of conquest and expansion, and it squeaked into the inscription before someone finally convinced Darius to let the monument be finished. Sometime around 519, Darius led an army into the far northeastern reaches of his empire in pursuit of a Saka tribe, part of the same broad category of steppe nomads called Scythians by Greco-Roman sources. Specifically, Behistun identifies these as the Saka who wear pointed caps, and that was a pretty common way of identifying different Saka or Scythian groups, the style of hat they tended to wear. In the Behistun inscription, one of these guys is depicted with a big cone on his head, a bit like an oversized birthday hat, or for a less positive example, an old-fashioned dunce cap. In their pursuit of the Saka, the Persian army captured one of their chieftains. I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Who was brought to Darius and executed. The same process was repeated with a second chieftain, possibly a rival, successor, or co-ruler to the first, named Skunka, which may be the most stereotypical steppe nomad barbarian name ever. Actually, the inscription never mentions Skunka being executed, so it may be that he was only taken captive and allowed to live for some reason. Maybe he facilitated the transfer of power over to the new pro-Persian chief. But with Skunka deposed, a Persian puppet was placed in charge of the Saka, and Darius claimed their territory as part of his empire. There's a lot else going on in these final two inscriptions at Behistun, 
but most of it fits thematically with the episode I'm going to do on the inscription itself, so I want to hold off on it. But there are a few things to point out now, like how rebellious Elam sort of was. For a territory that was theoretically at the center of the empire, and so culturally similar to the Persians that they were considered Arya, despite speaking a vastly different language, Elam rebelled a lot in one year. First with Asina, the very first rebel against Darius, and then with Martia, the Persian who I mentioned earlier, and finally with Atamaita. Elam revolted more than any other province up to this point, but they also recognized and feared Persian might, because the first two revolts ended with the people turning on the rebel kings and handing them over. Elamite political history is obscure and hard to piece together when the Elamites were running the show, and harder still under the Persians. But you really do have to wonder what in the world was going on in 522 and 521 to cause so much disruption in the heartland, or maybe wonder what exactly were the circumstances of Cyrus taking over, because we never actually hear about a Persian conquest of Elam in all of our records. The final Behistun inscription campaign against the Saka also stands out. It's never really described as a rebellion, except for when the Saka are listed as a rebellious group of people much earlier in the inscription. But it is listed among the revolts, and Skunka is depicted at the end of the line after all of the other liar kings in the monument, making it hard to tell what kind of war we're really talking about here. It's also interesting that Darius chose that campaign to return to the field. If it was a rebellion, it probably would have fell into the hands of Dadarshi and Bactria to deal with, unless it was really brutal and the king was called out because it was so extreme. But the king was often present for wars of expansion, and Darius going to the far-flung steppe may tie in with an attempt to legitimize himself. Among many other groups, the Sokka were one of the people who took the blame for killing Cyrus in 530. By going out and personally defeating the people who killed the greatest Persian conqueror, Darius might have been seeking to gain some sort of legitimacy. A sort of, look, I can do what even Cyrus failed to do, sort of thing. But again, this is all just speculation on my part. That leaves a few instances of revolt and rebellion not covered by the Behistun inscription. First up is Satagadea, which is listed as one of the provinces that revolted while Darius was in Babylon. Its resubjugation is never addressed again, and it's a little confusing as to whether or not it was actually part of the Achaemenid Empire in 522 to begin with. Satagadea was a region of the Indus River Valley on the easternmost extreme of the Persian Empire which may or may not have actually been a regular tribute-paying province when Darius came to power. We're relatively sure that the Indus Valley was not fully subjugated until Darius invaded the region between 518 and 515, but it's possible that parts of it were at least nominally defeated by Cyrus. We just don't have very much information about the region at that time. It may be that it slipped in there while the Persians were carving out the monument around 518, but it also appears in a section that might have been carved a bit earlier, so the whole question just gets jumbled and confused. Second, and much more conspicuous in its absence, is Egypt. In the same sentence that mentions Setagadea going into revolt, Egypt rebelled. Again. If you count the revolts against Cambyses following the failed coup of Samtik III, this is Egypt's second revolt against the Persians since Cambyses first occupied Memphis, 
putting it on par with Babylonia and Elam. Despite being one of the wealthiest, most significant, and most recently conquered parts of the empire, the reconquest of Egypt is not included in the Behistun inscription. The regular academic consensus as to why it's not there is just that the rebellion Egypt took longer than it took to carve the side of the mountain. Sometime in 522, a rebellious Egyptian noble, possibly related to the 26th dynasty dethroned by Cambyses, or maybe just an opportunist with support, joined local leaders across the empire in rebellion and took the pharaonic name Seheruabe Petubastet, becoming the third Egyptian pharaoh to call himself Petubastet. Apparently, he fought for control of Egypt with the Persian satrap Ariandes, and later sources accused Ariandes of levying heavy taxes, which would have been in line with Cambyses' existing policies when he assigned Egypt's first satrap. That was supposedly the motivation for the revolt, but really they probably also just wanted to be independent again. The rebellion continued for years, and was apparently ongoing when Darius himself first came to Egypt in 518. Apparently, Darius and his subordinates did a pretty good job of wiping out any record of the rebel pharaoh, but a few objects with his name and dates from his reign have survived. He had enough support to fund at least one temple in the Dakla Oasis, and the western oases in general seem to have been a core of his support, far away from the Persian-dominated cities along the Nile. He funded the temple of Thoth at Dakla, and one theory suggests that Pedubastet ambushed and wiped out a Persian army on its way to the Siwa oasis, and that story was eventually twisted into the idea of Cambyses' lost army in the desert. Darius also embarked on a series of building campaigns in the oases after the revolt was defeated as a way of strengthening Persian influence there. That's not to say that Pedubastet had no support in the cities. According to the Roman military historian Polyanus, the cities were safe enough that Darius could visit Memphis for the morning of the Apis Bull in 518, that is, the same Apis Bull that Cambyses is falsely accused of having killed five years earlier. But there was enough support for Petubastet in Memphis that Polyanus comments on how Darius pledged an extravagant donation to purchase a new bull for the temple, and won over many Egyptians with that support for their native traditions. There's no evidence for the military campaign that finally defeated Petubastet, but Darius was essentially able to buy popular support in Egypt, and once again it became part of the empire by 517. Darius heavily invested in construction projects there to make sure that it stayed that way, but ultimately he would be disappointed. The Behistun inscription also excludes any reference to rebelliousness in Syria, the Levant, or Anatolia. The first two were probably just areas that remained loyal to Darius, due in no small part to the Persian army actively being there when the revolt started breaking out elsewhere. There are a few passages in Ezra, Nehemiah, and Isaiah that some try to argue are the Jews contemplating a revolt, but that doesn't make much sense. Yehud was a tiny subdivision of a subdivision of the larger trans-Euphrates satrapy, and Darius was the king who provided funding for the second temple though somebody might argue that he provided that funding to keep Yehud on his side. Anatolia is a different matter, though. We know from Herodotus that Oroites, the satrap of Sparta, formerly Lydia, conquered and killed his neighboring satraps and refused to send troops to help Darius. 
but Darius dealt with him by sending an agent to his court and turning the local satrapal army against Oroites. So maybe the lack of military action kept these events off of the Behistun inscription. Or maybe it was just settled too late to be included, because Herodotus doesn't always keep his timeline very straight. For more details on Oroites and his rebellious behavior, check out episode 18, The Tyrant and the Kings, specifically the last third or so of that episode. Finally, we have a much more personal betrayal, which must have occurred sometime after the Behistun inscription was completed, but before the invasion of Greece. I say it must have happened after the inscription was complete, because it kind of sours the monument if you look at it from Darius's perspective. Into Frenes, the co-conspirator who had put down the Second Babylonian Revolt, committed treason in a story related to us by Herodotus. Keeping his usual style, Herodotus makes things a little bit more personal and intimate than reality would probably dictate. He starts by repeating a popular myth in the Greek world, that the six co-conspirators agreed that they would have the singular privilege of unlimited access to Darius after he became king, unless he was in bed or with one of his wives. That's probably not exactly how the privileges of the highest-ranking nobles worked, but it was the common Greek understanding of things. Well, one day, Interfrenes wanted to see Darius, but two of the palace guards stopped him and said that the king was with one of his wives, and that the nobleman would have to wait and come back tomorrow. Interfrenes accordingly snapped, mutilated the guardsmen, and tied them together with a horse bridle before storming out of the palace. In a gruesome and kind of hilarious image, the two guards waited, tied together and injured, for Darius to be available, and only then did they enter his bedroom, presumably hopping along like a three-legged race, and telling him that his closest confidant had savaged some of his guards for enforcing basic royal policy. Understandably shaken, and feeling like he just missed an assassination attempt, which may have been the case, Darius sent messengers to the other five conspirators to ascertain whether or not they were conspiring again. Even if they had been, can you imagine them saying that they were plotting against Darius after he found out that something was up? After watching rebels get crucified once every few months for about two years, imagine how Darius would respond when it was personal. Of course, all five disavowed Interfrenes and his actions, fearing that Interfrenes was still plotting a rebellion of his own, maybe feeling like he should have been placed on the throne rather than Darius. Soldiers were sent to round up anyone the great king saw as a potential threat. That included Interfrenes, but also his wife and children, his extended family, and any of his allies and friends capable of marshalling their own troops. Every man among them was executed, Antiphrenes obviously most of all. Herodotus tells a probably fictitious story where Antiphrenes' wife was forced to choose between her own brother and her son. Mrs. Antiphrenes reasoned that she could remarry and have a new son after this debacle was over, so she chose her brother to live. Personally, I'm a bit freaked out by that logic, but according to Herodotus, Darius was impressed and let both men live as the sole survivors of their extended family. It never comes back into play in Herodotus' histories and is clearly buried in the Persian tradition. But I have to wonder how this event impacted Darius. Assuming Herodotus was right about the conspirator who played the role of traitor, and there's no proof that he was, Antiphrenes was apparently very close to Darius. In the Behistun inscription, 
two men stand immediately behind the great king, carrying his weapons. Furthest back, in the role of spear-bearer, is Gabrius, the original conspirator against Bardia, and Darius's own father-in-law through his first wife. But immediately behind Darius, carrying the king's bow, the ultimate symbol of royal power in Achaemenid iconography, and in the position of most trusted, is Intifrenes. At Behistun, Darius's grand victory monument on a sacred mountainside, Intifrenes is memorialized as his most trusted companion, and according to Herodotus, he was also a traitor. If the Greek historian got even some of the details right, that was a brutal and personal betrayal. But for now, I'm stepping back from Darius's personal life and turning my attention once again to the grand geopolitical sphere of things. Next time, I want to turn our attention to the Persian expansion under Darius and follow the Persian army into new frontiers as they push the Achaemenid Empire to its greatest toral extent from the northern coast of the Black Sea to the Arabian Peninsula to the Indus River. Until then, you can get more information about the podcast at historyofpersiapodcast.com. I've got maps and the Achaemenid family tree there if you want to check that out. For those that don't want ads or just want to support the podcast, you can find my Patreon in a link below or at patreon.com slash historyofpersia. I'm the History of Persia podcast on Instagram and Facebook and just at History of Persia on Twitter. Please, please, if you want to support the show, spread the word on social media and tell your friends, or maybe leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever else it is that you listen to podcasts. Until next time, thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. 
Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.